Want to cut cooling bills without cutting comfort? Lower utility costs and enjoy cool and consistent comfort with a highly efficient air conditioner from Luxair. With Luxair's consumer rebate program, educators, nurses, first responders, military personnel, and veterans can enjoy exclusive rebates on qualifying purchases of Luxair equipment. To learn more, call G-Team Mechanical at 765-376-3042 or visit gteamhvac.com. They'll recommend a system tailored to your home that provides comfort, energy savings, and lasting performance. This is Trackside with Kirk Cavan and Kevin Lee. Will Ed Carpenter be able to get his first win in the eyes on IndyCar Series? Here they come to the line, and it is Carpenter. Ed Carpenter wins. How about that? They come down for the white flag. One more tour of the one and a half miles at Chicagoland Speedway, and Briscoe leads by a foot or so. But now what Briscoe wants to do, he wants to maintain that position on the high side and hopefully get a run off of four. And he's getting help from Marias. Mario Marias comes back. Jimmy Vassar said the car wasn't as fast, but now it's fast. He's helping him. And he's got momentum, not enough to get up on that high Meanwhile, side. Meanwhile, they're four wide behind. Here comes the win, and who is it going to be? Briscoe. Briscoe has the advantage. And he gets the win. Oh, man. Still undecided. Buddy came off of two a little bit better. Now they thunder into turn three. Final two corners in this run here. And it's still a question mark. Vitor Mira dropped back just a bit. Now he pulls up alongside. And at the line, Mira. No Rice. At first, the computer gave us Mira. And then it gave us Rice. Whoa. Oh, it's good to hear some classic finishes as the IndyCar offseason rolls on, but the news continues to flow. Indy Lights has a new name, Indy Next, spelled N-X-T, and 16 drivers have been testing at Sebring the last couple of days, and the times are pretty tight, we'll detail later on. As Indy 500 seats dwindle, three big names are still without definite options. We'll discuss, and how that impacts the entire season as well, And the IndyCar Championship team is also the champion of NASCAR's top class. And it's the first time Team Penske has won the IndyCar and Cup title in the same year. Hello, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Trackside 93.5-1075, the fan in Indianapolis. I'm Kevin Lee. Josh Molnix is in our downtown Indianapolis studios on Monument Circle. We welcome you tonight. Your tweets are uh, encouraged at any time. We'll get to those later on at Kevin Lee 23 at Kurt Cavan as well. Kurt will join us coming up in just a moment. I, I will start out and maybe kind of continue the theme of the radio station. I know some of you nationally maybe aren't as much as interested in this, but you, but you probably have heard about it. I don't know how you haven't unless you've been under a rock the last couple of days. Derek Fabert says all of the Colts media says that yesterday was wild. Meanwhile, Kurt and Kevin had Alex Pelo signing day and uh and are like, could be crazier. I kid, I kid, Derek writes. Yeah, so that that one still is tough to top when the defending champion is announced with uh two teams in one day. But yesterday was pretty fascinating as a sports fan, and I will admit I, I missed for a day being involved uh like I used to be because it is a, a really wild story. And I'll just diverge for, for just a moment. This is an Indianapolis radio station, and maybe we can carry over some listeners from uh, JMV and, and everything else earlier in the day. So I'll offer my two cents on the new Colts coach. 
I will say this. My opinion, uh, I think, is a little bit different than everyone else's. And I will also admit that my opinion is biased because while I haven't talked to Jeff in a while, Jeff was a friend. Uh, so I, I like to take credit for Jeff's media career. And I'm also kidding on this, too, because he was a natural. But when I was doing sports talk, Jeff was hired as my co-host on Colt Monday Nights in his second season in the league. So when would this have been? Somewhere like 1999. And Ken Dilger recommended him. He had been a backup offensive lineman. Maybe it started like the last game of his rookie season when Ken had uh, moved on to Tampa Bay, he said, you should get this Jeff Saturday guy. He's smart, he's funny, and he's going to be really, really good. And and we were kind of like, who, what? Is he going to even start? And, and then we figured out, yeah, he is going to start and talk to him a little bit. And yeah, he was awesome. He was amazing. We all knew he would have a great media career. And now with uh, no NFL experience at all, he's a head coach And the natives are restless. And, you know, everyone's probably right because that's the prevailing opinion. But here's my dissenting opinion. Aren't you looking for something special? Aren't you looking for attributes that are very rare, uh, meaning being able to lead people and having people skills? Isn't that as much what being a head coach is and the rest of it is about delegating? And some of me wonders, and I'm probably wrong on this, but some of me wonders that the the NFL uh, hierarchy and, you know, for example, if you asked assistant coaches off the record, I can imagine they're annoyed at this and they're not going to say, yeah, this is a smart move because he skipped the line. He didn't pay his dues. He didn't work 100 hours a week buried in the film room. He went straight from being a player, having a nice casual life for a decade, and now he's the head coach. One, good on Jeff Saturday. Two, no one wants this to work because that will become now a path for other uh, well-known players, star players, even just players that are thought well of to to be able to skip the line and, and not have to be a scout and be an intern and everything else that goes along with that. It's going to be tough sledding, but... Boy, Jeff Saturday is a special person, and and I got to see that a little bit behind the scenes, traveling with the team when he was there, and I, I really do give this a, a bit of a chance, and I don't think it can be judged on how the team does, and if nothing else, uh, I think he would be good front office material, and he will be better qualified to do that at the end of this last half of the season for the Colts, so enough of that. We'll move on. I know you didn't come here for that, but I've got no other outlet to talk about what's happening. And maybe I'm just happy that I actually know the coach of the Colts again. I sort of knew Frank Reich, but not really, not really. So I'm happy for Jeff, and I hope that works out. Now let's bring on Kurt Cavan, who I don't think he's on assignment, but he's joining us from Las Vegas tonight for the program. So are you out there scouting for Formula One tickets, checking out the track? What's the story? (laughs) Well, I didn't didn't know they were doing an exhibition here this weekend. They had... uh cars spinning around and 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 making it look like it it really reminded me of when we were here with IndyCar uh what a decade ago and we ran on the streets and and made it look pretty cool so yeah they were showing footage and and uh and making it feel like a big deal and there's signs around town and they've got you know a lot of tickets sold apparently all of them uh from what I read all the suites sold so 
In fact, I think if I was going to buy tickets, if I had the chance to buy tickets, even if I wasn't going to go to the race, I'd go ahead and buy the tickets. You know they're going to resale well. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, a lot of excitement in Vegas. Uh, That wasn't the purpose of the trip, but uh, you, you, you can kind of blame it on that. Actually, very little time spent on the on the uh, strip. Uh, we have family here, and my son joined us uh, in town from from California. So it was a chance for everybody to kind of get together. So little, not very much strip time, but uh, a lot of good fun in Vegas, nonetheless. Good for you. That means you'll come home with money. So that's always that's right a, a positive. Hey, you know we've we've passed a milestone, and we'll get into all the big stories in just a moment. But you know, I always mark the off season. NASCAR season is complete, so we can cross that one off. In some ways, Formula One season is complete because the champion has been crowned, but there are still a couple of races left. Uh, I, I may touch more on the NASCAR season in a little bit, but I guess for, from our perspective, if we don't have a specific rooting interest, and, and I like Ross Chastain, and I really like Christopher Bell. I don't know Joey Logano at all, um, but I would say – I'm happy that Joey Logano win. The way I look at it is, hey, the the people that own IndyCar collected some prize money. So this is good for everybody. You know, I really thought Joey Logano had had uh, really strong odds to win this championship going into the final race. I just felt like he was the guy that that could deliver in a big moment. Uh, he seems to have have won a lot of races in pressure moments when he need, he needed to and you know, goes out and sits on the pole, or at least I think he was on the pole, led, led very yeah. quickly and, um, and really, you know, just controlled that race and, and does what he does so well. So I, again, I was in Vegas. Uh, I didn't even look at the line to see what it was, but, but, uh, you know, Joey Logano is a, a worthy champion. Not that I didn't think Ross Chastain would be a worthy champion. I don't think that's fair, but I just felt like, you know, you want the best guys and, to win the titles and um you know this format is a little bit conducive to somebody sneaking through a little bit and i just felt like joey was you know one of the two best candidates to win this championship yeah he would have been a favorite here chase elliott i didn't see betting lines either but they were the heavy favorites so i saw someone last night post the standings uh from the old standings full season and it's not that far off from the way it ended up chase elliott in the old points format, would have been the champion. He won five times. Ross Chastain would have been second, if I trust whoever posted this on social media and was was retweeted. Logano would have been third. Blaney fourth. Larson fifth. Christopher Bell sixth. Um, and, and here's the other thing that struck me. You know, in this season, there were two surprise entries into the Final Four. Christopher Bell had a good season, but that, he had to win – he had to win in two of the rounds to advance, and Chastain was a little bit of a surprise, although, as pointed out, he had a very strong season. And my thinking was, if somehow those guys run one, two, three, four again, oh, uh, but without Elliott getting turned or turning himself, uh, without uh, a problem for Christopher Bell. They might, if not one, two, three, four, they were going to be in the top seven or eight. And I did note watching the truck race and the Xfinity race in the truck race, they were one, two, three, four with five to go and finish one, two, three after one of them crashed. Ty Majeski crashed. And by the way, we still never had a Smith in the Indy 500. Yet there were two Smiths in the final four of the truck championship and a Smith won it. Zane Smith. Good kid. I got to know him just a little bit in ARCA. He's a nice kid. 
And then in Xfinity, it was one, two, three, four by the end of the first stage, one, two, three after two, and then one, two, three at the finish. And Josh Berry hit the wall that kept it from being one, two, three, four. So um, somehow they make that happen every year. And I'm not sure. I, I can't even say that the fix is in because somebody'd have to know and somebody would spill the beans, but it is, it does make you scratch your head. And and in this case, this year, when there were some surprises, when you had good programs that were not in the championship, if none of them were in a mix for the race, then that would really be a little bit sketchy, but it seemed a little bit uh, more normal in this particular weekend. Yeah, it's, you know, IndyCar has had a lot of its championship contenders go to the last, you know, few laps uh, in contention. You know, it goes way back, but you think about 02 and and Hornish and, and Castroneves running side by side over the last, I don't know, handful of laps to win the championship. And, and, you know, Dario and Dixon, uh, mm-hmm. the year Dixon ran out of fuel and, and there have been a few others, uh, just off the top of my head, I know there are, there are some, but you know, I think what you see is the best drivers and they put the most emphasis on it and, and the best programs for the, for the course of the season, or at least the last part of the season. It shouldn't be a big surprise that they're in contention. Now, one, two, three, four does seem like a lot, but it's not, a, it shouldn't be a surprise that they're in the top five or six because that's the way they've run during the playoffs. So not in that order necessarily or in that grouping, but my point is they've been strong. So you, you would expect that they would continue to be strong. So not a huge surprise. I don't think the fix is in because as you said, uh, people can't keep a secret, but you know, uh, again, I would have bet big money that, that, uh, it would have been Elliot and Logano going for the win late in the race, the win of the race and of the championship. If there is anything at all that leads to that, it would be, and this would be what people would speculate on and who knows whether it's accurate or not. It's that, all right, if you're in the championship four, you can probably push the envelope a little bit and you may not fail tech. Uh, don't go too far out of bounds, but you're probably going to have a better chance of getting through tech. So maybe that's that way. It's never said because everybody's always pushing the envelope. And sometimes it takes them a second time, a third time to get through. So that'd be interesting to see if any of the championship four have ever not gotten through the first time in tech. I I don't believe it happened this weekend, but I also don't believe a whole lot of people. Uh, I don't remember hearing about multiple people going through. You know, and the other obvious story is it, it was it was hard to watch the race on Sunday and really enjoy the race uh, because I think everyone knows this, the Xfinity champion, Ty Gibbs, who was already embroiled in controversy and no one really knew how to celebrate this young man who have has made some mistakes uh, along the way on the track and doesn't always say the the right thing, you know, loses his dad that night. We still don't know the circumstances, but he simply didn't wake up and Coy Gibbs was well-known in the NASCAR circle. So Joe Gibbs has lost two sons, both at 49 years old. Um, There's not much you can say other than, you know, the NASCAR community is dealing with this as best they can right now and trying to support Joe Gibbs and their family. Yeah. It's a, it's a heartbreaking story and it's haunting from the standpoint of you see the photos of the family celebrating the championship and, and, you know, the, the result, you know, less than, what 12 14 hours later if that so it's uh 
it's just a heartbreaking story on all accounts. Um, one other thing about the, the guys running in the top four, you can see through the years and particularly, uh, late in the race, these guys are the championship contenders are cut a little slack by their, their opponents. So I think, you know, they're able to, you know, make an aggressive pass that might not, you know, get the respect of the opponent most of the time. But in, in this case, they're kind of cut a little slack because you don't want to be the driver that takes out a, a championship contender. So they probably could be a little more aggressive and lean on their opponents a little bit more than might otherwise be the case. And they may not get leaned on as yeah. much as some, some others, especially when you're talking about a short track. You know, if, for example, uh, you know, he had a teammate behind him, Logano did. But if it was a non-teammate behind him at the end of the race, I don't think anyone is going to move one of the championship four at the end of that race. That's just going to be too much bad PR and it's going to be it's going to it's going to come back to you. So, yeah, that that's another reason why it can be legitimate that they tend to stay up front. So as we get into the IndyCar world and, and talk more about some of the things that I talked about at the, the top of the show, it does start somewhat with NASCAR. We at one point. We're looking at potentially three drivers doing the double, the Indy 500 and the Coca-Cola 600. And we both said at the time, you know, if you had to choose, I don't remember how we phrased it, but if you had to choose uh, between all or none, I think we chose none. And I know we definitely chose that if we just talked about the two Kyles. It's looking, as as I've kind of hinted for the last few weeks, like there may be no opportunities. I wouldn't rule that out because I still think if someone wants to sign up for Dreyer and Reinbold, one of the Kyles could be there. But right now, there's no deal for a double. Agreed. And and I remember Nathan Brown and I having this conversation on this show uh, during a segment. And I said, okay, I give you uh, zero, participate, one, two, or three. And he said, I'll take one. But I don't – I think he said I don't feel great about that. Yeah. And so you'd have to uh, – y- yeah, you're, it's really going to come down to whatever – Ryan Reinbold is going to do and and how much confidence uh, some of these guys feel uh, in that race team. And, you know, it's it's a uh, an enviable position for Dreyer, uh, for Dennis Reinbold and Dreyer Reinbold to be, you know, kind of one of the last spots this far out. Now, you've got some time to kind of, you know, they're going to have two cars. They have a deal with Chevy to run two cars or they could. And, you know, it's it really gives them an opportunity for leverage with a lot of these drivers, not just the three we're talking about, Jimmy Johnson and, and uh, the two Kyles, Larson and, and Bush, but you've got the chance for other people too, if they want to put together a deal and, and they've got bu- budget and they've got a program that, that can make it work, you know, you've got an enviable, enviable position for Dennis Reinbold. So here's the scenario with Jimmy Johnson uh, last week. He announced that he was becoming a partial car owner in NASCAR. He's joining Petty GMS, which, by the way, is a Chevrolet team. And he's going to do about five races, including the Daytona 500. So I got some questions immediately. Uh, Does this mean he's turned his back on IndyCar? You know, there are a few things I have in mind with this. I, I think he's one of these guys that just doesn't want to retire. And I don't blame him. He's 47 years old. No one else in life has to retire when they're 47 years old. He's not going to work 60 hours a week anymore, but I think we feel the same. No matter how much money we have, 
we'd like to do something to stay busy and still have a purpose. So I don't blame Jimmy on that. And I think once he decided, because it's become clear that as of summer, he was still leaning towards running full-time in IndyCar again. And then I think the reality hit. You know what? I am enjoying this, but it's not going to get a whole lot better uh, on the road and street courses. So what else can I do? And that, I think, is how this came together, that he wants to stay involved and be active. And if I'm not going to do a full-time IndyCar schedule, and by the way, I don't know if he has a lot of options in him. So the last time I talked to him, you know, he was looking at all categories. And he said, if you know anybody, let me know, because I don't have any offers right now. So there's an offer, and this will allow him to to feel like he's still very much involved and, and stay focused on something. Well, you know, there's there's something to be said for for staying focused in your you know second part of your career. I guess I'm a little surprised that Jimmy wants to be in ownership of a race team and be at the racetrack on a pretty regular basis. He hasn't said what his schedule might look like, but. You know, same with Jeff Gordon. I know NASCAR is what they have known, what they have excelled at, what they have connections in, and where their interest lies. That may be the biggest one. That's where their interest is. But it still surprises me that those two in particular, you know, they, they'd like to be, they, they say they'd like to be with their families and, and, and then Jeff's at the racetrack all the time. So, you know, it, it does surprise me that you'd want to be an ownership, I guess. Um, it it just surprised me. I'm not surprised he wants to run five or six races, including the Daytona 500. Doesn't surprise me that he wants to run uh, sports cars and keep active as a driver in some form. But but being in ownership moving forward does surprise me. There's only so much time you could spend with your family, though. The, the rest of the world at 47 years old is still working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, traveling, doing everything. And in these situations for Gordon and Johnson, they're going to somewhat call the shots, especially uh, Johnson. What I saw is he said, I'm, I'm not committing to coming to the track. I think I can do my end of the deal based in Charlotte. And even if he does come to the track, I don't know Gordon's schedule. I'm not at NASCAR races, but I'd be surprised if he's there on Friday. My guess is he comes in. I could be I could be totally wrong on this, but I would think at least some weekends he has the option to fly in late on Saturday afternoon, go to a dinner with sponsors and come to the race. And he's not flying Southwest trying to make sure he gets signed in in time to get, you know, the the window seat. He's flying private. It's not that bad. He's back home by Sunday night. So, you know, a day and a half out of your week. And by the way, the family can come with you because you're flying private. I don't think this is a major obligation. Here's the other thing. If you've been in it, And no matter what it is, it's difficult to be an observer. I think a lot of people find that when you've been, quote, in the trenches, it's tough to just sit and be an observer. You want some skin in the game. And if you're a Jimmy Johnson or whoever, leave Jimmy out of it, but just anybody that's been involved. All right, this is my life. I'd like to still pay attention. I still want to be involved. I'd like to show up, but I don't want to show up and just stand there. I want to have a purpose. I'm not going if I don't have a purpose. And I'm kind of bored sitting on the couch watching it on TV. So, hey, somebody offers me a deal. It was said that it wasn't given to him, that he's invested. Who knows what the scenario is? It could be simply, hey, I'll put my um, 
I'll leverage what I can to bring us sponsors. You know, he said that nothing has been decided. He'll talk with Carvana. But if I'm petty GMS, I'm thinking, uh, I believe Jimmy might be able to get us some some stickers on the car and some funding. So even if he's not bringing cash, which he may be, but there's a real value to have him involved. And just from a mentoring standpoint, he brings some value beyond anyone else. He can he can do the super speedway races. I'm kind of surprised he's doing Daytona, but if he wants to drive, that's the one where a one-off situation, he probably has the best chance of being competitive. And then he picks out some other tracks that he likes. I saw he liked a tweet that suggested he might do tracks that are going to be coming around the second time around in the playoffs to give the team some data in case they make the playoffs. So the more you think about it, I think the more it makes sense and he can still do the other things that he wants. But here's the other thing. It sounds like this all-star race that he wants to run in North Wilkesboro, which currently right now he's not qualified. So NASCAR would have to make an exemption that might possibly preclude him from doing the Indy 500. So if NASCAR wants to stop that, they just simply make him eligible for that all-star race. Yeah, that's that's a, a crafty way of doing it. But but as we've talked about and and we'll continue to talk about that, the number of opportunities for him or or someone else at the Indy 500 are dwindling pretty quickly, m- quicker than than we've seen in in many years. Um, anyway, I just I guess I'm surprised uh, that 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 he's into ownership and and that Petty is kind of where it ended up, but. Uh, you know, Jeff, that the Hendrick relationship, it, it really felt natural to him. Although I really thought that his schedule as a broadcaster was the perfect schedule for Jeff. Uh, he could come to half the races. He could be really invested as a broadcaster, but didn't have to have the daily stress of, of owning the team. I don't know. I've heard uh, one particular well-known broadcaster driver who got into broadcasting said, if I would have known this was this much work and there were this many meetings... I would have kept driving. I'm not kidding you. I, I think he has a more flexible schedule as an owner. I suspect he does than as a broadcaster. Um, now, it's gotten better in the last year or two since Jeff got out, since COVID, and they started doing things differently. But when Jeff was doing that, you had to be at the track on Thursday. Yeah. And you were on the air on Friday morning through Sunday night, whereas, again, I suspect as the owner, maybe not every weekend, but certain weekends if – the kids have a game or a quarter midget race on Saturday morning. He's able to stay and do that. When you're a broadcaster, yes, it's half the season, but from the beginning of February to the middle of June, you are pretty committed from Thursday through Sunday. One note on that all-star race, there still is a scenario where Jimmy Johnson could do both uh, because I believe the all-star race is on Saturday of qualifying. So it would only – no, no, I'm sorry, no, on Sunday. Sunday. On Sunday. So the only way he would have to be at the Speedway on Sunday is if he makes the Fast 9 shootout or if he is in the last row shootout, if there's – oh, that's right, it was 12 this past year, the the 12 shootout, uh, which does change things a little bit. You know, my first thought was, eh, he may not be in the 9, and he could just simply say, after the first run, we're 11th, we're going to stand pat. Uh, and then make sure he's not in the last row shootout, which would come into play if there are more than 33, which we think there is a chance. Now, of those three guys, and we'll get to – maybe I'll just touch on this first, the Kyles. Uh, Kyle Larson said 
Nothing has moved forward with it when asked about the 500. If something came to me that was in a competitive car, I would jump on it. I just think there's so limited rides when you're engine restricted to one manufacturer. It's tough. I read where Kyle Busch kind of stalled out. It's just tough, but I want to do it. Kyle Busch said he's got nothing on the Indy 500. It kind of went dark. It all dried up. Now, those three guys, especially if you're talking about a, maybe it applies to all situations. Of those three guys, who would you most want in your car? I think, I think you'd want Kyle Larson of those three guys. Uh, he's new. Um, I don't know. I could, I could, I guess it depends on the perspective commercially or I I was, so, so I should have told you how I was thinking competitively. You know, like some of some of these teams are saying, "Hey, we've got a chance to win the race. I, I, we don't need to get somebody up to speed and coach them along." Up. My thought is now at this point, I'm picking Jimmy Johnson yeah. because at least he has an idea what he's doing. He's not only done the Indy 500; he's done these other oval races. Jimmy in year two might be in a situation where he can help. And the reason I bring that up is, and we'll get to this later. Uh, what if Dryan Reinbold has chosen Stefan Wilson for one of their cars? Stefan has done the Indy 500 before and has experience, but it's not a massive amount of experience. Are you going to pair Stefan Wilson with Kyle Busch and Kyle Larson? Agreed. Uh, I thought I was going to answer the question based on commercial, uh, commercial benefit with talent kind of, I don't want to say secondary, but but that was an equal part of the equation. If you're just looking at can I win the Indy 500, it, you get you got to go with Jimmy. You got to go with Jimmy. I think all things considered, it's still Jimmy because we know he has sponsorship. We know he has Carvana that's backed. I think with the Kyles, it has to be found. And the reality is still with Kyle Larson, uh, some sponsors are going to do a Google search and see what happened three years ago. And they're going to say, we're not involved. So some are going to be crossed off the list with Kyle Larson. That's, it's a, and that, that's kind of true with Kyle Bush too. Some are going to yeah. say, yeah, he's too bombastic a personality. You know, it needs to be someone like Monster. I, I still think Kyle Bush could find the sponsorship. A lot of Kyle Larson's program is still funded by Rick Hendrick. And his companies, there's not a ton of outside sponsorship. It will change and ease as time goes by. And people that know Kyle Larson continue to vouch for him and tell you that that's not really who he is. But the Google search is big. And all it takes is, you know, one out of the three or four or five decision makers to say, "Uh uh-uh, we're not in that game. Jimmy Johnson has no red flags. And he's the more experienced, uh, a more plug-and-play situation. I think he makes more sense for an Ed Carpenter, too. So Ed Carpenter, Nathan Brown's story, actually Tim Broyles, the general manager. Nathan covered a lot of the things that we've been talking about in a story last week, but furthered it up by getting some quotes from some people. And I think Tim Broyles' quote was, on a fourth car, it's not a no, but it's unlikely. And, and I agree with that. I think that's right. It's it's unlikely but if you're one of these teams thinking about rolling out an extra car, don't you feel more comfortable with Jimmy 
than you do with either one of the Kyles who has not done this before. Absolutely. I, I think that is that uh, is accurate. And the commercial side comes along with Jimmy as well. So uh, you've talked me out of that one. But uh, I guess I, I led with which one interests me the most. Yeah, and maybe yeah. that wasn't the way to answer the question. I still want when when one of the Kyles, when somebody new does it again, I really hope they can do it the right way where they can do a test, a tire test in the fall. Something can be worked out where they have a real feel of what this is going to be like. Kurt Busch had the right scenario. He got in the car here way early and had just a little feel of of what it was uh, and what it was like in this kind of a car. And I think that helped his progress. So we'll continue to stay tuned on on that front. Um, some more things and going back to the Nathan Brown story, he covered a, a lot of ground. I think we'll get into that coming up in just a few minutes. Some of the things that we've guessed about have been hearing about Nathan got some confirmations on. We'll talk on that and plenty more all coming up. It's trackside 93.5 the fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Hi, this is Ed Carpenter, and you're listening to Trackside. Thank you for staying with us. Trackside 93.5-1075, the fan in Indianapolis. So... We, uh, we're going to have to pick up the pace a little bit, and we will. I think we mostly just talked about the NASCAR drivers and the Indy 500, but it is fascinating in the last segment. Uh, so now let's get into some of the, the other things that we've been talking about and what more we've learned since last week's show. Nathan Brown of the Indianapolis Star had some good updates. I would mentioned for the last couple of weeks, basically, I'm not sure that we're going to see Sage Karam Returning to Dreyer and Reinbold, I would consider both of those seats open. Nathan got confirmation on that, both from Dennis Reinbold and also from Sage Karam, who said he's focused on on his NASCAR program, you know, getting to do more of that. He did, I don't know, six to ten races, something like that, and had some success at times this year. Um, Dennis told Nathan there have been no serious conversations with the Kyles, Kyle Larson, Kyle Busch, but believes they offer as good an opportunity as anyone out there. And at this point, unless Ed Carpenter can be talked into it, they offer the only opportunity. Yeah, I think that's the right way to say it. It's the only opportunity. It's a good opportunity. Uh, I think Ed's would be a better opportunity based on Ed's Ed's success rate, particularly in qualifying. And it's, you know, it's had drivers lead the race and so forth, but uh, they're both good opportunities. And that may apply for Jimmy Johnson now, too. I don't think I mentioned this, but Jimmy didn't specifically say whether he was allowed to drive a Honda. He said, I still have a good relationship with Chip Ganassi, uh, and that's a potential option. We'll get into that scenario. Basically, and I've, I've said this for the last few weeks, I'm not sure if there's a home for Jimmy. And other people are obviously hearing the same thing. And I think it's based on if they find a driver full time for the fourth car, they're not going to run a fifth car. And Nicholas Latifi is speaking on the record as if I'm considering it. And we know his family has the money to be able to pay for that ride. So I'm not aware of any other option. I don't know if Latifi is going to get done. Latifi did say, if I do this, I'm going all in. I'm doing the Indy 500. I'm doing all the ovals. I'm not coming over just to do road course racing. 
So in that scenario, I don't think there's a home for for Jimmy, even if there was. Say Latifi declines and Ganassi runs three cars and wants to run a fourth. Jimmy said he hadn't broached that subject yet. You believe that? That he that he says he wants to do the Indy 500 and signed up with a Chevy team and didn't ask anyone. Could I run a Honda? <laughs> yeah, it seems it seems a far fetched at at a minimum. It, unless he's just decided, you know what? Uh, this is more important. Um, I will do this deal and then I will hope for their good graces because I'm sure that what the conversation is, uh, if you do it, we'd really prefer you to be in a Chevy. And then if there's no room for Chevy, he may be able to go back to them and say, hey, listen. This is going to be good for the company. Uh, we're going to be able to bring a combined sponsorship. It's going – the Coca-Cola 600 in many ways benefits more off someone doing the double than the Indy 500, right? Absolutely. And I think your your point is well taken. I think he can say, look, I, I'm obviously per- pursuing and preferring to run a Chevy, but here's the circumstances, you know – this came up with my ownership stake late. Um, I was already down the road talking to Honda and, and so forth. I mean, I think Jimmy can pull that off now yeah, because he's already yeah. been in a Honda. I think that's right. Uh, what else? Ed Carpenter. Oh, back to Dryer and Reinbold. So I've guessed that Don Cusick and Stefan Wilson, if they were to find a home, it's probably Dryer and Reinbold. And Nathan Brown in that story speculates the same. So we'll see. If that comes to fruition on Ed Carpenter Racing, I told you what Tim Broyles said, unlikely for a fourth car. We touched on this a little bit, but I don't think we've really gotten into it. So what this means is there's no room for Simona Di Silvestro either for the Indy 500. But Broyles did not rule that out in a similar situation to like they had this year running other races. Yeah, I think the Indy 500 program for her feels like it's evaporating and you know, you go back to if you're Broyles uh, and Ed Carpenter and you wanted to run a program that could win the Indy 500, I think you'd you'd say, if we're going to add a car, let's add Jimmy. Jimmy comes with budget, and he can win, and he has the experience, and he adds, and he adds, etc. It, it, this disappointing as a fan, though, because sure is, of course. the Indy 500, as good of a road course racer as Simona has been right now, the Indy 500 in an Ed Carpenter car is a much better opportunity. I'd love to see what she could do in a good car. I think she could qualify top 10 and run up front until she's doing all the races again towards the end of the season. The reality is it's going to be tough to be in the top 20 for Simona on road and street courses. It just is. It, it yeah. takes too long to get back up to speed after you've not been doing it for almost a decade. But you explain that your reasoning as a, as a race fan and wanting to see Simona do this. I think if you're, if you're the race team, oh, yeah. uh, you need to think about it a little differently. And, oh, certainly. And that is, if I were going to do it, if I were them and I was going to do it, Jimmy would be my first call. Cause I think it works commercially and competitively. So th- this um, revelation that there is still an opportunity for Beth Peretta and Simona Di Silvestro to be in the third car. So this basically would be Ed Carpenter's car. That would mean that they're potentially open to running that all season. You know, if they put together four or five races. So here's why that comes up. There are a couple of drivers uh, that are looking to move up from Indy Lights that have some budget, one I think more than the other, 
but don't have enough budget for a full season, and there really aren't any seats out there. So that scenario, if I'm Stingray Rob and Linus Lundquist, I'm rooting for Beth Peretta to find the funding to do four, five, six, seven, eight races. And the more she does, the more incentive I think Ed Carpenter has to say, hey, this can just be a full-time car, and we could potentially then run it full-time with leader circle money, in 2024 so maybe there could be three drivers in that car and that also would give them a chance to evaluate a couple of young drivers yeah it's a it's a good thought process and and i hadn't thought about the <laughs> rooting for beth Peretta's program to to gain some footing i think that that really could work well for stingray and for for lundquist uh although i think I think Stingray will end up with, with something. I think he'll end up with three or four races. I, I don't know where or if it's not the carpenter seat, but, but I think that still feels like it can happen. I'm going to have to think on that more because I don't, I don't know where it's going to be. I mean, I guess it would, it would be because teams have no other option. I know Hunkos wants one driver. In the second car, I'm sure Dale Coyne wants, maybe that's the option there. Yeah. But I don't, I don't sense that. I don't sense it either, Uh, but I, I feel like Coyne could, you know, he, he seems to have given the vibe that Sato might not be a full time driver, but would have a seat for some races. Oh, I think Sato, I, I think Nathan had that on the record that Sato is involved. We don't know whether it's just Indy 500. Just the ovals or more. It seems very clear, though, that in, unless something um, shows up financially for Takuma, he is not full season. So there's going to be a second driver in the 51 car in the in the combined effort with Rick Ware racing next year. Uh, maybe it's Marcus Armstrong. I'm not sure. Maybe it's Sting. Maybe it's three drivers again. But I know that's not the desire. You'd like to just have. One at least on all the road and street courses, and and then your your oval situation, uh, or at least your Indy 500 situation uh, as well. Uh, Dale Coyne did say that he'll be three cars in May, two for the season though. So he's kind of crossed off running that extra car. Maybe it's because Ganassi is saying we're going to run a fourth car full time. So that's the last Honda engine available for full time. And then the other uh, point I'll bring up here is. Uh, Will Marotti, some have seen on social media, he's been pushing a kind of a crowdfunding type of situation. And he was involved in an Indy 500 program as a co-entrant a few years ago, I think maybe on Oriel Servia's car. Well, that's maybe been five, six years ago. He raised some money last year, but not nearly enough to get a, a car on the grid. He's still hoping to do that in a technical relationship. But but there is something I read out of there that makes me think this actually does have a chance. He mentioned that he was opening to be a, a partner. They're not – I hope they do because I'm in the business of raising money for racing too, but he's a long way away. And, you know, he needs to raise a million and a half dollars. And they raised 122 last year, so that's not very close. But if they will be content, if they can raise a quarter of a million – then basically you can get a sticker on the car. You became a become a sponsor. Now, what remains to be seen, because I'm sure they want to be a co-entrance, is a team going to allow you to have your name as a co-entrance 
for that kind of money, or is it going to be more in the four or five hundred thousand dollar range? That's part of the negotiation. There are a lot of other things involved in that, but but I am feeling more optimistic about Will's chances to be involved in the five hundred if he's willing to just be it, which is is fine. It really gets you the same things. Um, yes, you'd love to see your name on the side of the car, but mostly you're trying to build. You're trying to build sponsorship. You're trying to pay off the crowdfunding and do the experiences that the Indy 500 can offer. And that can all be satisfied. So I got to think there's going to be a team running a car that says, yeah, we got space on the car. Uh, we'll be happy to have you as a, a partner on the program. So uh, that's where that stands. And, and I think that's good news on that front because we need more potential owners. And he has a real passion for the Indianapolis 500. And I hope that that works out for them as well. While we have time, I want to touch on just a couple of other things that I think are really cool. Did you see the videos and the uh, social media pics of Marcus Erickson taking the Borg Warner back home to Sweden? Well, he's been excited about it. I mean, and that program we saw work really well with with uh, Simon Pagino in France, with Takuma Sato in Japan, and the opportunity to take it home to to celebrate with the people who have watched you from afar, who have uh, supported you through your you know, European ladder system and getting to Formula One and, and running the IndyCar series. So that's just a really cool thing for, for Marcus to, to get the opportunity to do. And thanks to Borg Warner for that one. They've been able to, to kind of end the speedway, but I've been able to put this program together where they can celebrate, you know, take the trophy. It's a very Stanley Cup NHL kind of thing. It's share the trophy with your, uh, with your supporters, the people who have been with you for such a long time. 8,000 people showed up in his hometown of Kumla, population 22,000. That's yeah, fantastic. That's Unfortunately, we've had some oval races in the past that didn't draw 8,000 people, so that's a pretty good crowd. Uh, so good on them. And then the other thing internationally I noticed, we, we've talked about Junkos Hollinger doing demonstrations with Augustine Canapino in Argentina. Uh, looked like they had a pretty good crowd there for that. Yeah, I make, think that makes you wonder. Maybe there is a market for a race there that that uh, Ricardo is trying to get going. Yeah, I think if you've got uh, you know you can get a get a big company to be involved and then kind of start putting the pieces together. But the first piece of that, well, the second piece, the first piece is Ricardo to do well in the IndyCar series, and he has started to make a splash. Calamilot's been a real welcome addition to the sport. Uh, they, you know, qualified on the front row at, at, uh, the last race of the season. Obviously they bumped Fernando Alonso. So you build that equity as a race team. And then, you know, just the, the building of the interest from the fan base. That's what, that's what a promoter and the sponsor needs to have happen. So it looks like there's interest. Now the next part of that is the commercial part. And, you know, you can kind of look at the numbers. Okay. Top line uh, sanctioning fee in America is something like $1.5 million. We see that from public records with Laguna Seca. So how many times does that need to be doubled? You know, it's it's not just say, hey, look, the crowd will come. No, somebody's got to pay for it now, and it's more expensive to do an international race. I don't know if that number is two times. Is it three times? Is it four times? But it's definitely a times. It's at least doubled and probably tripled 
when you involve the expense, when you factor in that the other sponsors, the other teams would say, hey, our sponsor doesn't care about being in Argentina. We can't activate. It's just an extra race, but you know, no one's going to come from our sponsorship group. So that's where the extra money comes in. But I hope it works out because I know Ricardo has been working hard on it for a little while. And while I agree that North America is the focus, if you can find a good commercial reason to go somewhere else, we are all for more races. Well, it, this is about, for Ricardo, it is about having a race in, in Argentina, but it's also about raising money for his race team in Argentina. It's huge for him. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, this is a double agenda. And, uh, you know, the, the more you can do in that front, the better. All right. We've got more to come. We'll uh, check into some tweets and preview what's on the way in hour two as we continue. Trackside, 93.5, 107.5, The Fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. This is Alex Palou, and you're listening to Trackside. Okay, let's sneak in a few Twitter questions and comments. Paul Ingram, Paul J. Ingram 56, he is our man on the scene out in Monterey, sends along a tweet from a local news outlet saying, The WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca Bridge was destroyed today in preparation for a new bridge to be built, part of the $14 million given to the raceway for crucial repairs earlier this year. And it's a video of the, the crossover bridge being demolished. So a new one going on there, a repave. So that's good news there. I love Laguna Seca. And I hope that that continues to grow because it's an important part of the IndyCar calendar. We've got a repave going on at Road America. That's going to be fascinating. That is going to be fast there next year as well. James Clark at Mr. Underscore James Clark asks, any chance Carlos Munoz could come back for the 500? Can't believe he's not a contender for a seat given his consistently strong performances at Indy. I agree with you, James. Uh, that is kind of a shame. He was really close to winning the race at least once, twice, and up there all of the time. Here's one theory. I don't necessarily subscribe to this, but one theory is once you are a pay driver, it's difficult to get away from that. And Carlos' family was funding his participation. Now, I don't totally buy that because most drivers have to have their ride bought for them in some fashion, whether it's family money or a link to sponsorship or the family doing B2B, whatever. It's difficult. There are some that bring nothing and get hired, like Joseph Newgarden, Kyle Kirkwood, or a couple that come to mind, Oliver Askew. You know, it, it does happen, but it's difficult. Uh, the idea generally is somebody's financing it early on. Uh, James Hinchcliffe is an example. Uh, James' dad did a fantastic job Funding his start of his career, partly with some of the family's money, but really just with the connections that his dad had. His dad was a great businessman and just found other people to pay for it. And they funded much much of his rookie season. Year two, though, he got hired. Uh, so that didn't happen from Carlos. But the theory is that, you know, somebody thinks there's money there. So they're not going to give you the ride. They're going to keep asking for funding. If you're good enough, it's still an opportunity to get hired. And he was really good at Indy. But I guess bottom line to the question, I've, not, I've heard it, nothing about Carlos 
for a while. And with the short, short availability of seats, I don't think it's possible next year. It's back to the beginning, though. If someone wants to, to pay a million and a half, then I'm sure someone would be willing to give him a chance. If not, it's going to be difficult for him to be able to get back in. And Mike Wyckoff, three, asks, have there ever been talks of IndyCar running the old F1 layout at IMS for the GMR Grand Prix and run the current layout NASCAR weekend? Short answer would be yes. I'm sure there have been talks. Whether it's going to happen, I don't know. Doug Bowles brought that up. I need to listen to that again to see exactly how he phrased that. But essentially the answer was, and I don't know if he was talking about that layout, but I think the question was, would you consider doing something different for the second run at IMS? And he basically said, I think yes, but there are other considerations along with that. You you know, have some different curbing involved. If you're going to do the Formula One layout, I don't know where things stand as far as the safety aspect and where safer barrier is. But But again, short answer would be yes, but they're not ready to pull the trigger on that at that point. But it's something that I would think would still be considered. All right, uh, coming up in the next hour, Kurt's got a really interesting conversation uh, coming up that I think you'll want to hear. And uh, we've already, some of the things I just talked about in the last segment, I got a text that, hey, I need to check out what's going on today. So there's a little bit of news still going on about car count for next year and some engineering changes we'll get to coming up on Trackside. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. It's our number two. Kevin Lee, Kurt Cavan back with us again in just a few minutes. Josh Molinix in downtown Indianapolis at our studios on The Circle. Thanks for joining us. We continue in the off-season I haven't looked at the schedule closely, but I believe we're Tuesday again next week. Still Tuesdays for a little while. I know this, looking ahead, we are going to be off Thanksgiving week just simply because there's really no date available. I think we had maybe a 9 or 10 p.m. slot available that week with Pacer Games and some other things. I said, you know what, let's just take a week off. And this year we're only going to take one week off around uh, Christmas and New Year's. Just, uh, I think... It's just the week between Christmas and New Year's that we'll be off, and then we'll be right back at it, and we continue to get more and more news. So let's get into it. Uh, Even since we started the show, something I'd missed from this afternoon has come across the wire, as they say. So we talked in the last hour about uh, the report last week from the Indianapolis Star, Dale Coyne, telling Nathan Brown that we're two cars and a third for the Indy 500, but that's probably it. So a little bit of a tweak to that, but maybe, maybe not. Marshall Pruitt at Racer.com reported uh, this afternoon that Coin might run a third car part-time, so beyond the Indy 500. So here's the scenario where I think that plays out. Uh, Coin has already said that Sato was involved in some shape or form. We don't know how. So what that tells me is that it's unlikely that he finds a full budget, to do the full car, and now it's a matter whether he has budget to do just the Indy 500 or a few races, and do they also find someone that they like with full budget to be full-time in the second car? So if they find a driver that's going to run the second car all year, 
all ovals, Indy 500, then Sato's in a third car, and does he have budget from someone? Maybe it's just Rick Ware saying, I want my car to have the best chance to win the Indy 500, so I want uh, our crew and our driver running at Texas, and if we're going to do that, we might as well go ahead and do Iowa and Gateway, where Sato's been very good. So I think that's the scenario where that comes along. So it's not that much different than what was talked about, but did just want to point that out. Now, what I think is more significant are more changes on the engineering front. Yet another talented engineer is leaving Dale Coyne Racing and moving on. And again, it's to Chip Ganassi Racing. Pruitt reports that Ross Bunnell, who was David Malukas' engineer on the 18 car this year, is moving to Chip Ganassi Racing and will become Scott Dixon's engineer. So at Ganassi, you might remember that Chris Simmons stepped back in mid-season or so and finished up the year. He's the uh, director of performance. Uh, Michael Cannon took on more of an overarching role, more shop base, was still at some of the races. But Simmons stepped in. But you have to believe that there's a reason they moved him off Dixon's car in the first place because they wanted him helping to oversee the entirety of the program. So they went out, and that's the way it works. If you're one of the, quote, smaller teams, if you do well, you lose your people. Now, before we worry too much about Dale Coyne, I remember we had the same conversation a couple of different times. You know, remember they lost Craig Hampson and recovered with that. Cannon was already well-known, but Cannon took on a bigger role, and so did Olivier Bolson. And when Cannon left, we said, well, they still got Olivier Bolson. They're going to be fine. Uh, Well, actually, I don't know if we did or not. We wondered, what's going to be the impact? But they were fine. And then I do remember saying after Bolson, and they've lost others, um, assistant engineers, if you will, in the depth chart. And I remember wondering... We weren't sure what they were going to be, but also openly saying, you know what, we've doubted them before, and they have continued to provide good race cars, so I'm going to think much of the same. In fact, I remember having a conversation about other things with Dale, I'd say mid-season or so last year, and we were talking about Malukas, and I think I made a joke that, you know, somebody's going to take your engineer again, and he basically said, I didn't write down the quote, but it was, yeah, it's fine. Uh, The engineers we develop are good, and there's a reason we develop good engineers. We like these people, but we also have a system involved, and essentially, I think he was saying, they're not taking everything. We've got some things here that work well with our program, so they'll promote from within. Maybe they bring somebody else from another program. I am pretty confident all will be fine, but it still hurts, and it's still a process, especially starting the season Uh, They likely will have to replace someone on Maluka's car. And it's not been fully confirmed yet, but I saw Malukas basically confirmed it. And I'm going to guess he knows since his dad is a part owner of the team as well. And also significant, Todd Phillips, Marshall writes, who has been with that team for many, many years. Last year was the crew chief on Sato's car in the 51 here's another example of being able to go out and spend. You can get who you want. It's it's why some of the other owners are not super keen on Zach Brown, but Zach Brown is able to hire away Todd Phillips, and he becomes the chief on Alexander Rossi's car, uh, the number seven for Aero McLaren SP. So silly season for engineers and crews doesn't get as much love, but it is just as significant in many ways as to the driver 
situation. Okay, this is uh, something we learned about last week. It's been hinted for a while. We've heard about it. In fact, one of the, the really good sources was at the end of the season victory banquet when Mark Miles said, hey, you might have a new name for Indy Lights next year. And, you know, my first thought was, well, he means it's no longer Cooper Tires, so it's now Indy Lights presented by Firestone or the Firestone Indy Lights series. And I asked a few people, and it was immediately, no, it's bigger than that. And uh, we've got confirmation of what it is now. This was announced along with the new schedule for next year, which is, by the way, identical to this year. So just go to this year's schedule, and it's the same markets, the same double header weekends as it was before so no changes uh for 2023 i would think at some point they'd love to get to long beach but that was probably part of a longer term contract and there there's a lot of competition for track time everybody wants to be involved in long beach whether it's sports car series or robbie gordon series or whatever uh so a lot of times the way these things work our series have to pay to be at Long Beach in front of that kind of crowd to satisfy their sponsor requirements. So that's a negotiation between the promoter and the series and who knows how long that contract was. So maybe that can be tied into the next sanctioning agreement with IndyCar. Now that IndyCar owns what was Indy Lights, it can be included as a part of that sanctioning agreement. But the new branding is Indy Next, spelled N-X-T, by Firestone, Indy Next by Firestone, and, and some of the verbiage in the press release, it mentions extending racing's reach and impact to a younger and emerging consumer audience. Also, among the things in the press release, it says um, they are guided by an ethos that aims to inspire and relate to Generation Z and the young talent piloting race cars. So um, I'll let smarter people in marketing figure out the impact of that. I know it wasn't met with uh, great fanfare in in our world. I would also say, hey, let's give it a chance. Um, You know, we have our people that are interested in Indie Lights, Indie Next, whatever you want to call it. And maybe this is a way of just trying something. People have wanted IndyCar marketing to try something. So you can try something at this level. And a name alone isn't going to do anything. But maybe they do get aggressive and do some different things, uh, experiment with the the top step of the ladder and see if that works. And maybe some of those lessons can be learned and applied to IndyCar as well, because there are awful, awful lot of young people and it's tough to get them interested in racing. It's going to take a new strategy to get that done. And that's for people smarter than me to figure out how to get that done. But excitement as far as it's going to take me a while and I'm going to slip and say Indy Lights often for Indy Next. Car count up. It still looks like it could be 16, at least 18. I think we're pretty much at 17 now. I know Hunkos Hollinger is still trying to get a second car. Uh, there were 16 on track yesterday and today. And then one who's confirmed doing most of the season was not there. Josh Pearson, who is doing World Endurance Championship, high-level racing as well. I'm not sure that he's doing all the races, and I suspect he was doing some sports car testing and not available here. But uh, one thing that really stood out is that Jamie Chadwick was quick both days. You you never know how things are going. There is push to pass in these cars. Is somebody using that? Is somebody underweight? But I think she was fourth both days. Yesterday, the uh, 
the the chart I saw said Reese Gold, Hunter McElray, Daniel Frost, Jamie Chadwick, and Kiffin Simpson were the top five. And then today it was McElray, Gold, Simpson, Chadwick again, and Rasmus Lind. I also think today is a better indication, for example, uh, the Cape Motorsports cars. I'm not sure they had run before. They didn't do much yesterday in the morning and you know they probably like all new cars had some electrical issues or teething problems and you know frankly they were a little bit of off the pace and remember too one of their drivers jagger jones is coming up from usf 2000 i think that was probably his first day in a lights car yesterday i haven't asked jagger that but i see today jagger was really close he was like a tenth off of Ernie Francis Jr. from what I saw. So he's in the ballpark. Everybody's in the ballpark there. Inam Ahmed was in the other Cape car, and the entire field was separated by, uh, what, eight-tenths of a second? Yeah, something like that. So that's good, and it's still very early days, but I think that's it for the rest of the year as far as Indy Lights slash Indy Next is concerned all right we'll get to some other things we've missed before we're done but coming up next i think this will be an interesting conversation you probably heard about the newman haas auction where really cool race cars driven by the likes of nigel mansell and mario andretti and graham rahal who bought a couple of his own they were auctioned off recently tim coffeen worked for newman haas for many many years i know tim just a little bit through robin miller uh kurt knows him much better and he is going to chat with tim coffeen longtime chief mechanic for newman haas throughout the 80s 90s and 2000s and share some good stories that's next on trackside whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits long live listening to your favorites learn more about Kaskali ribocyclob 200 milligrams at kisqali.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you hi this is graham rahal and you're listening to trackside on 93.5 and 107.5 the fan Welcome back to Trackside, and as you know, we talk about a lot of things during the offseason, and one of those was an event that happened just uh, about a week ago, and that was the Newman Haas auction of all their equipment and and memorabilia and a lot of cool things uh, that came as a result of that, and people got to share in purchasing the cars. Graham Rahal bought a couple of cars that he drove uh, back in the uh, about a decade ago, uh, Zach Brown bought one of Nigel Mansell's uh, Lola's that he won the championship with back in 93. And I thought that would be a springboard for a conversation that, that I've been wanting to have for a while with one of the guys that so many people recognize from being on pit road uh, through the years. And now this individual has a podcast that's terrific. And so Tim Coffeen joins us. Tim, uh, joined Newman Haas in, in 1989, was with the program for so many years. Uh, I think won seven championships during that time. So I thought it'd be good to have Tim, uh, join us and, and just talk about, uh, you know, let's, let's start with the auction. Although I know, Maybe that was uh, a little, you know, difficult for you a little bit because you had so much involvement with the team over the years. But Tim, good to have you, and let's uh, let's just start there. You know, you're when they put these cars up for sale. I I, I think that was probably a 
a challenging thing for you from the standpoint of being so invested all those years? Well, uh, to be honest, it was. Um, emotionally, you, you feel uh, somewhat attached to those cars. I I looked down the list. I saw a list of uh, the cars on Sophie's, if that's pronounced properly. <laughs> uh, but I worked on over 20 of the cars that were in, uh, went up for auction. So when you're a mechanic on a race team, and uh, uh, Newman Haas was obviously a great racing team, and you put your heart and soul in it, uh, not saying you get to be uh, that you do. You feel an attachment to the cars, but uh, you know time passes, and uh, Mrs. Haas wanted to turn loose of them. That's that's her right, and uh, uh, I had a great career there, and I got no complaints. You know, one of the things that I've always found interesting we we obviously honor the the drivers that that win big races and are champions and so forth. But one of the great things about this sport, different maybe than the NFL uh, or the NBA, is that that the other major player in a in a win in a race win is the actual car. And so you you know, for example, you can go to the IMS museum and you can see all these cars. When you go, when you have a chance to see a car that you've worked on, give me a sense for like, you know, how much, you know, memories of, of the, of the season. If you were looking at a car in that first season that Michael Andretti drove for Newman Haas racing, I guess you remember not only some of the stories behind one of those races, but it's a people. It really brings everything together, doesn't it? Absolutely. Uh, in 1989, for example, uh, it was a long, hard, uh, hard, hard-fought season to get that first win at uh, Toronto, and, uh, and when we followed that up right away with a win at Michigan, the Michigan 500. So when you see those cars, Kurt, you're absolutely correct. <clears throat> it becomes emotional, and uh, they're not people or anything like that. But you made a very interesting analogy by bringing up the fact that a uh, you can go in the Speedway Museum and you can see uh, Ray Haroon won the race 100, over 111 years ago. And there sits, he's gone, but that car he won the race in is still there. And and racing cars, uh, there's something about them uh, that you're right. It, they they become part of the fiber of, of your being. When you're, when you're involved with a racing team and a, a mechanic, you put so much time and effort into it with your teammates and uh, you have to have a great driver to win a race. It is, and uh, racing cars are—they're very, very special. When you see a car, and give us an example, I guess of 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 maybe one of those years. You know, you see a car that, let's say, Mansell drove in in '93. Uh, how many of those cars might you have had in in '93? I mean, I know you can't remember specifically, probably, but just an estimate of of how many cars, different machines, maybe that Mansell would have driven. Uh, so this is this one of seven? Is it one of three? Is it one of ten? How many would you expect? We had two cars for driver, Kurt. Uh, each driver, we had a, every race we went to, we had a car that was designated as the race car and a car that was designated as a spare car. And uh, we would rotate those chassis throughout the season. But uh, if you see a, a red five, as we called it, when uh, the 93 car, um, there was two of them. Hmm. 
Only two. I would have, I might have thought I was probably leaning on the low side because I thought there might have been three, maybe four in a course of a given season. But, but I guess we think about that being a different era, but maybe in some respects it, it wasn't that, uh, there wasn't as many cars maybe in the system as, as you would expect. Well, rotating chassis or tubs, as you would call them in those days happened. Uh, we would always start the year at Newman Haas with two cars per driver, and we might have a spare tub in the shop. Uh, but the only time, I mean, tub is the basic car. I mean, the side pods and the body work and the gearbox and the engine and all that is, you can rotate all that. So the, uh, the integral part of a race car on an Indy car is the tub. And, uh, Mansell crashed heavily at Phoenix. Uh, the first oval race in April of, uh, 93 and didn't run the race, but we repaired that car. And, uh, memory serves me correctly. He had two chassis, uh, for that complete season. Hmm. Tim Coffeen joins us. What primarily was, was, uh, your contribution to the team? What was your, I mean, what area of the car were you particularly good at? Well, in those days at Newman Haas, we had, uh, we had four mechanics. Uh, we had one guy to do the front end and one guy to do the back end. We had two cars. So you had four guys doing those jobs and you had a chief mechanic over the entire car. So I was a front end mechanic and I changed the outside rear tire. Uh, some of the pits, as you know, and Indy car racing goes left and some of them go right. So I was the outside rear tire changer and I don't know. You call me elite. I was a mechanic, but we had four mechanics for the two cars and a chief mechanic and a gearbox man. So that's, it was pretty simple. Yeah. I guess that would be simple. You've had, uh, did I have that right? Seven series championships, uh, during your time at Newman Haas? Uh, yeah. Uh, Michael won in, in, uh, 91, Mansell won in 93, Christiana won in 2002. And uh, Sebastian Bourdais won from 2004 through 2007. So when I was there, they won seven championships, correct? Wow, that's that's impressive. Talk about uh, maybe, uh, you know, all these different drivers, you have different relationships with them. Uh, I Would it be fair to assume that, that Michael was, was probably the one you were closest with? Um, I really enjoyed my time with Mike. I mean, uh, it was tough when he left. Uh, I went to work when he went there. And the reason I was even afforded the opportunity to go to Newman Haas is because uh, at the start of the 89 season, Newman Haas had been a, a one car. And Mario drove from 83 to 88. And when Michael lost his ride with Craco at the end of 88, I think Mario stepped in with Carl Haas and Paul Newman, and they opened up a seat for Michael for the first father-son team. So I worked with Mike for four years, and uh, – we went three, two, one on the points from 80, 89, 90, and 91. Uh, and he finished second in the close race at Bobby Ray Hall in 92. And then he decided to go to Formula One. And uh, Mansell, Carl pulled a coup. I mean, that was huge to get the Nigel Mansell was the reigning world champion. And the guys, it, uh, it hurt to lose Mike. Uh, I'm not kidding. But Carl said, your new driver is going to be Nigel Mansell. Uh, he was the world reigning world champion. He just won the uh, 92 Formula One World Championship, came to drive for us as Mario's teammate. So we had two uh, Formula One World Champions for teammates. And that was a great team. Uh, you know, worked with Nigel. Uh, Mike came back in 1995 
and he ran through 2000. And uh, I always had a great relationship with Mike. Uh, Mike's a hard charger, and uh, I think, you know, his history at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, I grew up in Indy, and I always wanted to win that race. And we had uh, a lot of misfortune with him there. But people ask me to this day, if you're going to go to Indy, who would be your driver? I'd say Michael Andretti because that guy come race day. So there was times I don't – I think that he didn't even uh, – I'm not saying the speedway scared him. It definitely did not. But I remember one day it was really windy at Indy and we were uh, practicing and Mario said, Mike, take your car back to the garage. I'll finish the practice testing. And Mike says, okay, fine, Dad. But when it came to race day, he really got after it. I mean, in 1992, he started six and was leading in the first turn. And um, cumulatively, uh, what did he lead there? 500 laps. He didn't win. But uh, And then you move on when he left and Cristiano DeMata came, and we weren't running the speedway then. But Cristiano, was a, he won uh, the CART championship in 02 and did a fantastic job for us. And, had a good relationship with him. Uh, it, it was, yeah, I worked with some really good drivers through the years at Newman Haas, and that's an understatement. Carl Haas, his philosophy was uh, you build the team around the driver. He, you got to have a race. You can have everything else in the line, Kurt. You can have a great crew, uh, car. You have the proper engine, the, uh, the great engineering staff. And if you don't have a guy to push the button, uh it's all for naught. And Carl always, always took care of us in that respect. We always had a great race car driver to sit in our race cars. I mean, I ended up at the end of the Newman Haas era. I was, uh, Graham Rahal came and ran and, uh, Inchcliffe ran for us the last year, Oriel Serbia. Um, we had a lot of great race car drivers at Newman Haas. Tim Coffin joins us. Uh, let's go back to to the 93 season from the standpoint as we look at this historically. We've seen we've now seen some some big name drivers here in recent years. Uh Fernando Alonso come to the Indy 500. Uh we saw Rubens Barrichello. Uh you know, we've seen some guys with with some and others, but but we've seen some of this uh dipping in of of drivers of dif- different disciplines. What Nigel did especially in that first half of the season when he was being with he was acclimating and I know he got a lot of testing in uh compared to what drivers today would get going into uh, an IndyCar season but his transition to this sport and the way he raced in the Indy 500 in 1993 should have probably should have won the race uh he had a, just a great year can you talk about just how significant that is historically uh, give it some perspective of how well Nigel did in, in, in really short order. Well, first and foremost, I know that was almost 30 years ago, but to realize like you just stated, he had the reigning world uh, champion formula one guy had won 14 poles and nine races the year before for Williams leaves that team doesn't defend his championship comes to America uh, to take on the challenge. He's never run an oval before. And uh, he comes over here uh, to run IndyCar. And I remember when we went to Australia for the first race at the start of 1993, there was a couple of 747s that flew from London with race fans. And they were singing like I thought I was at a soccer game in England, the way they were singing songs to him. And uh, 
the crowd, the reception was unbelievable. And he won the first race, the pole and the first race he ever drove for us, which was a, a magnificent accomplishment. And then he went, like I said, we went to Phoenix and uh, he had a really bad crash in practice and uh, it, it injured his back and he didn't even get to run at all. He had no oval. We did a, uh, we did some testing with him on ovals, obviously. And Jim McGee was a team manager and he's a, a legendary figure in IndyCar racing. He did some, he, we did a simulated race with Nigel at Phoenix, no other cars on the track, but we did pit stops and, uh, yellow flag, slowed him down for yellows and tried to get him some experience. But going into the Indy 500, then Nigel had no oval experience. And like you said, he got jumped on a restart at the end of the race, uh, by Lion Dyke and, and Fittipaldi and ran third. Uh, but I'll tell you something. He learned that day. And that's an understatement because there was four ovals left on the schedule in 1993 and he won every one of them. And, uh, Road racing, uh, we were top threes, but we never we never won another another road course in 1993. So he dominated the ovals after Indianapolis. The race he had at Loudon in 1993, Loudon, New Hampshire, with Paul Tracy and uh, Emerson Fittipaldi in the Penske cars, the last 50 laps was one of the most magnificent races I ever witnessed. Uh, and he won the race in the last couple of laps, and uh, yeah, he. He really stepped up to the plate on the ovals. I don't know, uh, road course racing wise. I mean, he was a brilliant road racer. Um, but we were, he seemed to really take to the ovals and, uh, it got us a championship. What do you, what do you attribute that to? I mean, it, it's, as you say that, and as I listen to you say that, I just can't imagine. And I was there in 93 and trying to remember some of the backstories behind it, but it's almost unfathomable that a guy with no oval experience never had raced an oval could, could, um, could really just step in and in short order and figure it out. I know Indy is not so much an, an oval as it is, as many have described a big road course, but but still, his oval dominance that season, it's almost un- unfathomable. Well, the guy had incredible car control. I mean, he was, he was, he was unbelievably talented driver. And uh, like I said, he never had run the speedway. I mean, he had never run an oval when he ran the Indianapolis 500 that day. I remember we didn't qualify that great. I think he started like eighth. And on carburation day, we went out on the tires that we had run uh, in qualifying. They give them back to you to, to run on carb day. We figured out the tires weren't. Uh, it was a set of tires that, that uh, kind of held us back in qualifying. But uh, like you said, the Speedway's a big oval, but still you're running 230 miles an hour there. And uh, I, I remember he did an outside pass going into turn one during the race. And I said, holy cow. And I'll never forget Jim McGee told him, uh, we figured out, uh, we figured out the tires were not good. And Jim told him the first yellow that comes out, Nigel, we're going to change those tires. And Nigel went straight to the front from eighth place. And uh, the yellow came out and, and Nigel told, or Jim McGee told Nigel to pit. And Nigel says, oh, that car's not that bad, Jim. And Jim said, Nigel, we had this discussion already. You're coming in when they open the pits and you're going to, ch- we're going to change those tires and get them off the car. And Nigel said, Jim, you give the orders, you give the orders and I will obey them. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I, I can't, 
put my finger on the road course thing. I, I our car had uh, it was a really really good oval car, but Penske cars might have had more downforce. I don't know. I really don't. But it wasn't for lack of trying. He, I remember him and Fittipaldi had an unbelievable battle at uh, at uh, Cleveland side by side through a lot of corners, and Emerson got around him. Not taking anything away from Emerson, but I would say that uh, uh, maybe the Penske cars had uh, their design. They had a little more downforce on on road courses and a little maybe a little more advantage. But he won poles that year on road courses, but uh, Australia was the only road course he won. Tim Coffin joins us, one of the great lead mechanics of of, of IndyCar through. Uh, a couple different generations of of the sport. Let's talk about, you know, just how it is from a from a team member standpoint. You know, ninety one at Indy, uh, Michael and Rick have have this incredible battle. Uh, we've seen the passes back and forth in turn one. Just a great battle in ninety one. Then Michael uh, obviously has a has a dominant car. Uh, you know, the next year, how is that from a mechanic standpoint? How are you, how do you look at those two events and, and just think, how do I not have an Indy 500 ring from one of those two years? Well, it just wasn't meant to be. And uh, I talked to Mike about it over the years. And uh, I mean, there's nothing, it hurts. I grew up in Indy and I went to work on that race team because I, I wanted to win an Indy 500, but I also learned being at Newman Haas um, every year, the start of the year, you had two goals when you went to work the 2nd of January. You wanted to win the Indy 500, and you wanted to win the championship. And the championship is, uh, to me, uh, I have to take solace in that. I mean, not winning Indy. I mean, Mike in 91, uh, he had, we did, like you said, him and Rick had that, that battle at the end. But Mike was, Mike was pretty dominant through most of the day. He led over half the race. And we got a flat tire, the left rear. He slowed down 20 miles an hour during, uh, in those days, Kurt, you had to run 32, uh, laps on 40 gallons of those cars then held 40 gallons of methanol. And under green, you had to run 32 laps, uh, to get rid of that fuel. Cause if you, if you don't run your fuel out under green, you're giving away maybe three quarters of a lap if you make a pit stop. Well, Mike had lapped up to fifth place in the race, and he slowed down 20 miles an hour. He was running two sixteens averages, and all of a sudden, he's down running 194, 192, and he's screaming the car was loose. So Ed Nathman, our team manager and strategist, called him in, said, change the tires, and the car's loose, take two turns of wing out of the front. Well, we found out, Ben, that the left rear was cut, and it had eight pounds left in the Mm -hmm. tire. There in those days, you didn't have telemetry on board to uh, indicate tire pressures to the engineers in the pits, so we didn't know this. And we changed the handling of the car drastically with the wing change, and we gave away our advantage. I mean, we lost three quarters of a lap there. And you know, I'm not making excuses. Rick beat us at the end. He he was a faster car. They worked on their car all day, but we had a huge advantage at the there over halfway through the race, and we lost it because of the. But that's part of the. It's part of racing. You just pick it up. We ran second. It was disappointing. Our goal was to go on and win the championship, and we did. Uh, the next year, uh, I don't know, we, we only qualified six quick, and I remember carburation day that year in 1992. It was ugly in our garage. Mike wasn't happy with the car. We had it all apart. 
And uh, and then race day, boy, on the when they dropped the green flag, he started six and he was leading in the first turn and didn't look back. And he ran a, a lap in the race that day. I'll never forget two hundred and twenty nine miles an hour. I showed my stopwatch to Paul Newman, who was standing next to me. He just shook his head. We had a great race car. I think the second fastest car that day was two twenty three uh, lap. It turned to two twenty three, and uh, a rubber belt that drives the Gilmer. Uh, the pumps in the front of the motor, a rubber belt broke with, I think, 11 laps to go. And uh, we lost again. So he, Tyler Alexander used to have a saying, the great uh, legendary McLaren. He was a guy that hired me at Newman Haas, but he used to have a saying, saying before he went out to race. And he'd say either she will or she won't. And on those two, no, two occasions, she wouldn't. I can't beat myself up about that. Um, he had a great career at Newman Haas and Andy's, uh, and then we didn't race there for several years, as you know. So it, it was, a, there's a lot of heartache there, but you know, I still love the speedway. I grew up here and it's been a big part of my life. And, and I was with some great drivers and teams and I'll, I'll have to take solace in that fact. So Tim Coffeen joins us. One of the other reasons, uh, that I thought it was important to, uh, to have you on, uh, one, you're an interesting conversation, but, but also, you know, this is a sport. And a life, you know, a society that we forget things pretty quickly. It is it is somewhat forgotten, not among everybody that listens to this show, but by a lot of people, just how great Newman Haas was for so long. Carl Haas, Paul Newman started that team in, in 83. It ran till 2011. Last couple of years were not uh, what we knew of Newman Haas prior, but what was it? 107 race wins. I mean, you yeah. talk about the great dominance. I mean, yes, team Penske was always there. Penske racing, um, at, you know, and there obviously Chip Ganassi racing has developed here in recent years, but it was Newman Haas. That was the team. And, uh, I guess I just wanted to, you know, have you speak to that just a bit and, and use the platform because it really was one of the dominant teams. Well, for me, myself personally, Kirk, uh, I grew up in Indianapolis, as I said, and uh, I hung around the track as a kid, got in the garage area when I was 15 years old and and when they were making the movie Winning, and I, and, uh, I wanted to be a race driver myself and uh, busted tires at Goodyear at the Speedway for them in the late 70s, race sprint cars in the early 80s. And, and uh, I always kept ended up, people would call me and ask me to go to work on IndyCar teams. And, uh, I was work. I worked at the machinist union for six years and we didn't win any races and I was frustrated. And when I heard Mike was coming to Newman Haas, I watched Mike in 1988. He had a, uh, the Ilmore was starting to become prevalent, the Chevy Ilmore engine and Mike didn't have one, which was at a disadvantage when he, his last year at Krakos. I remember standing out of the wall at Milwaukee in 19, June of 88. And I watched him go into turn one on the, on the throttle wide open on the rev limiter. And I said, nobody drives harder than that kid. And when I heard the next year that he was going to Newman Haas, uh, two friends of mine called me within a couple of days, Joe Flynn and Alec Greaves were both. I had worked with both of them previously on other teams, but they both worked at Newman Haas. And they said, get your call up here and get an interview. You'll end up working on Mike's car. And I did it. And uh, the time I got to spend uh, those four first four years working with Mike were, uh, I found a home up there. And Newman Haas was a group of guys that was way more than just people working together. It was, 
might sound cornball, but it was a brotherhood. I still talk to these guys that I worked with up there. I worked there 23 years, the greatest years of my racing career. These guys are not, they're way more than teammates. We were a brotherhood up there. And we traveled the world together. You think back when years when we were racing Australia, um, Japan, uh, South America, and Brazil. Uh, we went to Europe. Uh, we raced everywhere. To get, and we went all over the world together. And Newman Haas was a very, very special place. People didn't, when Carl Haas, uh, when he gave you a job, uh, I don't know. You people came from all over the world to work there. I worked with people from Australia, New Zealand, uh, America, Canada, uh, people from everywhere. And we were, there was something very, very special about the place. I have to give it to Carl and Bernie Haas and Paul Newman. They created a work atmosphere uh, and they let you, they left you alone and let you do, do your job. I mean, Carl took care of the money and, you know, the engineers had to answer for the handling of the cars and the people that ran his departments had to answer for the money they spent. But Carl Haas created such a great work environment. I mean, you might see him in the shop once in a while in the back and Mrs. Haas would come back once in a while. Mr. Newman would drop in a couple times a year, but they let the guys do their jobs. And uh, I don't know. It was something that was incredibly special. Um, as you said, we won the team overall won eight championships in cart and, uh, what was it? Uh, what do they call it? Champ car and everything. But anyway, uh, that's what it meant to me. It was, uh, Newman Haas was, it, it was, it was very, very special. And that, and that's an understatement. Yeah. I just, you know, and the success was, was just about unmatched. Yes. There's not, uh, you know, a spot on the Borg Warner trophy, but, but there's so much influence in, in the Indy 500 and, and in the sport in general. You've, you're such a good storyteller, uh, Tim Coffey. Let's talk just a minute about your, your podcast you've been doing. Um, you've just had so many good, good events, good shows here in recent, uh, weeks, really months. I don't know when it started, but, but just tell us how you find it what kind of interest that you get from it, what kind of enjoyment you get from telling stories about guys like Bubby Jones and, and guys you've worked with and, and just how, how enjoyable that is for you. Not, not being a guy who grew up in the media. Um, as you said, Kurt, I was a race fan as a kid and, and, and worked my way in. I wasn't from a racing family and, uh, for me to have a podcast, my cousin, uh, Joe Ziembo, he's an author. He's written several books. He's a football historian. He was giving a uh, seminar in Mesa, Arizona that I attended last winter. And he took me aside and said, uh, I want you to go on a podcast. Uh, they don't have anybody to talk about racing. And he went on with me and asked me some questions. And uh, uh, the Sports History Network contacted me, and, and uh, they they wanted to know if I'd be interested in doing a podcast. And to be completely honest with you, I had, you know, people come up to me and I'm not bragging, but people say something, well, you ought to write a book about the stuff you, well, Rob Miller used to tell me, nobody cares about books, you know? <laughs> and, uh, but anyway, for me, a podcast. And the one thing, Kurt, that I've come to realize with a podcast is uh, you can, there's a lot of freedom with a podcast. And what I have found and is dear to my heart is I like to talk about the people that have influenced me, 
as uh, over the course of my career and my life that were my friends and, and my mentors and my heroes as a kid. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot of freedom in it. And uh, I enjoy doing it. It's a lot of, I take it seriously. There's a lot of preparation that goes into it when I do it. And, uh, but that's how it happened for me. And uh, it's on the Sports History Network. It's called Tim Coffin Talks IndyCar and Racing History. And uh, I'm working on my next one. And uh, I think I've done nine so far. And I enjoy it. But like I said, I take it, it's just like working on a race car. I take it serious. <laughs> I bet you do. I, I actually am now envisioning uh, you getting all the prep work and thinking about the topic and and the way it would go. So I, next, well, Kurt, the- I, I, I'd like to share like the last one I did. My first seven I did with my cousin. He interviewed me, and then I did one uh, on on uh, Bubby Jones with uh, Bones Borsier came on, and the last one I did uh, was in about Michael Andretti's nineteen ninety one championship season. And I did that by myself. And one thing I did was I had never done this in my life. In 91, I lived those races. I went to them all, worked them all, and he won the championship. Well, I never watched those races on TV again. Well, I went back and I YouTubed them, and I I watched uh, some of those races that year. And it brought back a lot of great memories and opened up uh, the old memory bank a little bit. And uh, it's just it's the opportunity to share uh, some of the experiences that I've been fortunate enough. I mean, I was blessed to have such a great, great career. I got 23 years of traveling the world at Newman Haas and working with some of the most magnificent race car drivers and racers on the planet. And uh, if people are interested in hearing that, it warms my heart. And I'm going to keep doing it. Yeah, you should. I like I like the fact that you'll take a a year like 91 and and watch the races, take some notes, uh gather your thoughts and then just sit down and talk your way through it because uh hearing it from somebody who was on the inside uh just just outstanding stuff. Sometimes drivers can't and athletes in general can't tell you how they got to be great, but people around them can can fill in the gaps of the story in a much better way and certainly hear it from a different angle. So get the podcast, and uh, I'm going to go back and get a few of the ones that I've not yet listened to and think about you kind of studying now and, and doing your homework. So really good stuff. Tim Coffeen, lead mechanic for Newman Haas all those years. Timmy, it's good to uh, Fino, I guess is what uh, what we should call you because that's what everybody knows you as. And uh, appreciate the time, really do. Kurt, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed being here, and I uh, once again thank you. Yep. All right, we'll be back uh, with some more uh, here on Trackside ninety three five and one zero seven five. The fan. Whether it's audiobooks or all-time greatest hits, long live listening to your favorites. Learn more about Kaskali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Kaskali is right for you. Okay, final segment. It will have to be a quickie because we rambled too long in each of the previous segments, but we covered a lot of ground tonight, and I'm sure we'll have new news to discuss coming up Next week, I'm not sure we'll get into Colts coaching conversations like we did, although I am making my first appearance, I think, on Saturday night at a Pacers game. 
since before the pandemic. So I'm looking forward to that as well so I can get back to to, uh, having some clue about what's going on in the local sports scene. Thanks to Kurt Cavan. Thanks to Josh Mullenix back in the studio. I'm Kevin Lee. Uh, Podcast up. Do whatever it is they say to do. Rate, review, and so forth to help the logarithms and all of that. And you can find it on Spotify and the other outlets as well. We'll see you next Tuesday night at 7 on 93.5 and 107.5 The Fan.